Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael Oslin, the Payson J. Treat Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Asian Anxieties, Trump, Xi, Kim, and the Fate of the Indo-Pacific. It was recorded on April 15th, 2019. Good morning. Uh, I know I'm the only thing between you and lunch, so I will try to be quick. I have to say, though, I'm really, I am a little disappointed. Uh, Terry reminded us of his emeritus status, and that took away my excuse. So if, when I forget, you'll, you'll just you know, say it's early on. Um, so I wanted to, I thought we'd do something easy before lunch. North Korea, China, trade. Uh, and that's actually what I want to do. I, I, I thought um, a lot of you have heard me talk about the challenge we have with China. A lot of you have heard me talk about the competition we have with China. You know, how do we think, is it a new Cold War or are, are we in some sort of global heavyweight bout for influence around the world? But I thought this was actually a pretty good time to talk about Asian anxiety as we hit the midpoint of the Trump administration. So I thought maybe I'd do a, a, a midterm report card, and then at the end, and, and again, don't let me forget, I want to have you guys grade Trump. So I'll, I'll lay out the case, I'll give you his exam answers, and then you'll grade him. Does that sound all right? Okay. So we're going to start with the Indo-Pacific. Um, one thing that is important, I think, to keep in mind about the way we are, I would say, correctly approaching Asia now compared to the past is that we are looking at it much more as a whole region, the Indo-Pacific region, as opposed to East Asia or South Asia, or sometimes we called it the Asia-Pacific. But we, we didn't really take into account all the different ways that Asia was beginning to integrate uh, amongst itself, whether it's trade or politics or the like, that actually provided opportunities for us to find new partners and take advantage of the new types of relations and networks that they were building across this entire region. So I want to talk to you about the Indo-Pacific region, even though, for the most part, 90% of what we talk about in terms of Asia is China. China's big. China's important. China is not all of Asia. And that, I think, is the starting point for thinking about US policy in the region and then thinking about what the Trump administration is trying to do. So I'm going to go, I think I'm just going to do three exam questions for Trump and three of his answers. The first one will be, how do you solve a problem like North Korea? That'll be number one. The second one will be, can you keep the seas open in the South China Sea? That'll be number two. And number three is, are you really making a dent in China? So we'll do those three exam questions and I'll have you guys grade them. Now before I forget, because I know I will forget, uh, I want to mention a few of the Hoover products that are coming out that I highly recommend you read on this, because I, I, I know I'm, I'm going to let it go if I don't do it right now. So there are, are three things that I would recommend you read uh, in order to think about this more broadly. One actually is not, a, is not a Hoover product, but it is the product of H.R. McMaster, our colleague and fellow, and that is, of course, his national security strategy. So read that and read specifically how they articulated the challenges that Asia posed, the Indo-Pacific posed, and what we were going to do about it. That would be the first thing to sort of get a sense of what the Trump administration was trying to do. The second thing is if you haven't been following Secretary Schultz's governance in a new 
world or uh, governance in, in an emerging new world project, which is covering the whole world, I highly recommend you follow it. But specifically, there was a, an excellent, outstanding session on China that was done a couple of months ago. And there is a, a printed record of the papers that were given from that that were incredibly interesting. I highly recommend you pick that up to take a look at what was going on with China. And then third, uh, and also from Secretary Schultz's uh, project, was a, um, uh, an event that was done, a gathering that was done on technology and the challenges. And again, our colleague Gary Roughhead uh, co-authored a paper that was incredibly interesting on the tech, the AI challenge uh, that was broad-based, both military and economic and the like. So I would, I would recommend picking up those things and starting to give yourself a sort of broader view of what the Trump administration faces and what it's been trying to do. So with that, let's turn to the first exam question. How do you solve a problem like Korea? Trump has taken a completely different approach to Korea, or so we're told. The question is, has it made any difference? And in the end of the day, is it actually a different approach? The one thing that's different is the first thing we all know. That's very clear. Trump has met twice with Kim Jong-un. It's never happened before. I think what the betting in the administration was very clearly was that 25 years of American diplomacy had not gotten us to where we want to be. It had not achieved the goal, whether it was multilateral negotiations or bilateral or sanctions or everything that we tried. The whole toolbox did not work. And they inherited a situation after uh, eight years of what the Obama administration called um, benign neglect, was essentially a strategic patience, which was basically the same thing, strategic patience, where we had a North Korea that not only had nuclear weapons, now had the delivery means to drop them on the United States, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So Trump decided to do what, what he does, what he does well, which is go big. And they said, forget about all these low-level negotiations that get us nowhere. Forget about years of painstakingly putting together this, uh, this attempt to get the North Koreans to agree to a deal. We're going to the top. And there's a real logic to that. The logic, of course, is that it's a totalitarian system. Only one man matters in that totalitarian system. No one else matters. And if you're not talking to that man, and you're not trying to reach some agreement with him, leave aside the, the question of whether you can do that. But if you're not doing that, you're not going to get anywhere. I think that, that was the thinking when they accepted the South Korean suggestion that the two get together, that the North was ready. So we've had two summits. One was this first get-together summit. Didn't really come up with a solution, but it, it, it set, the, it set the, the predicate for meeting. The second one was much more interesting. Happened just a few months ago in Hanoi, and you all know what happened, which is that Trump walked away. Now, the Washington punditocracy was shocked by this. They were shocked because going in, everyone was saying, he's going to make a bad deal. He's going to cave. He's going to make a deal because he wants the quick win. And instead, he walked away. But that's what Trump told us from the very beginning he was going to do if he didn't get the deal he wanted. Now, I don't know if he was thinking that's what I said and that's why I'm doing it. But the fact is, from the very beginning of this process, he said, if we don't get a good deal, I'm going to walk away. Now, think about the stakes the optics, as we say in Washington, the optics of walking away from the table at the summit itself. The last time that happened was 1986 with Reagan and Gorbachev at Reykjavik. That was the last time a US president had that level of meeting, that level of getting so close to what he wanted to achieve, 
and walked away from the table because it, it wasn't the right fit. Now, Trump and Kim were nowhere uh, as close in sort of a concrete uh, proposal as Reagan and Gorbachev were. There wasn't anything concretely on the table in the same way, but Trump still walked away. Now, in the past week, you've heard Kim Jong-un say two things. One, I'm willing to have a third summit with Trump by the end of this year. And number two, I'm giving him to the end of this year to break the logjam and get an agreement. Here's the question I have for Trump, not for you, but the question I have for Trump is, are we falling for the same rope-a-dope tactic that North Korea has used for 25 years, except now it's just using it at the level of the presidency? Meaning, North Korea's always said this. It's always said, we'll give you until a certain amount of time to come to a deal. We'll meet you again. And then they just keep stringing it along and along and along. Because when we talk about complete verification, when we talk about irreversible denuclearization, when we talk about not leaving or not taking off sanctions until we see some activity going forward, the North Koreans always balk. And yet now, they have this new mechanism that's, that's very new, right? It's only happened twice. It's only happened in the past two years that they could potentially milk for months going forward or maybe even years going forward. The North Koreans figure out psychologically each administration pretty well. With the Obama administration, they figured out that this strategic patience meant we don't know what to do and we don't want to do anything. And so that gave them eight years to just build bombs and build rockets. With the Trump administration, it may be, I'm not saying it is, it may be that they figured out that Trump likes these meetings, likes the optics, which any president would because of the sort of paradigm-shattering nature of them, but that they can now use them to keep putting off the inevitable over and over and over. So watch very carefully what happens if they have a third meeting. Do we have any indication that a concrete deal is coming to the table? One thing that's concerning is that we've reduced a lot of the sanctions pressure on North Korea. That's not new to the Trump administration. Every administration does that. We have not held the Chinese to account for what they've done in terms of allowing oil shipments to go through in cross-border trade. We haven't had anything, it's, it, since the beginning of the administration, we haven't had anything new at the UN or anything that the Russians and Chinese have not tried to undercut. So the structural problems that US administrations face with dealing with North Korea haven't altered under the Trump administration. What has altered is the method. And I'll ask you at the end to judge whether you think that method is more likely than not to produce success. So that, that'll be the first exam question. What has Trump done? Has he solved the problem of North Korea? Let me go to the second part. We'll go down here to the South China Sea. Hope you can keep the whole map in your mind. Now we've moved down south a little bit. You see Taiwan, it's Taiwan up at the north there. And right down here where it says Singapore, right there is the Malacca Strait that leads from this, the South China Sea, over here, where it says Bay of Bengal into the Indian Ocean, the most strategic waterway in the world. 70% of global trade passes through that, $5 trillion per year. Into the South China Sea, because it's going up way up to the top there to the East China Sea to feed the factories in China, Japan, and Korea. It's the most strategic body of water in the world. Over the past five years, it has also been militarized by the Chinese. Um, do I have a pointer? Does anybody know? Do you guys know? Do I have a pointer, Chris? No pointer? All right. Pretend I'm pointing where it says Philippines, go to your west, where it says Spratly Islands. 
and I can't point out the islands, but China has, as you know, probably dredged up from the ocean floor uh, the coral and the sand. They've built up islands. And after promising the world that these were just, these were islands for commercial purposes and civilian purposes, we'd never militarize them, they've made them into fortified bases throughout uh, the Spratleys. They've also fortified those islands up. If you go to the northwest there, the Paracels, and that island called Hainan, which is Chinese territory, uh, they have basically created an ability on the Chinese Navy and Air Force to control the waterways and the skies over the South China Sea. Now, other nations claim these islands, the Paracels and the Spratleys. Uh, Brunei claims them, the Philippines claim them, Taiwan claims them. Uh, they, there are a number of nations that all are involved in asserting that these are islands that are under their control, but the Chinese are the only ones who have built up bases that can be used for military purposes throughout this region. And again, because I mentioned this is the most strategic body of water in the world, it has raised for the past decade the questions of freedom of navigation, of the health of the global economy, of global supply chains and the like. Now this all started about 20, uh, 2014, 2012, we're, we're not exactly sure because we weren't paying attention, then all of a sudden we started noticing this activity. And Washington's response was to do nothing. It wasn't to put any pressure on Beijing. It wasn't to assert, other than rhetorically, that we uphold freedom of navigation. So the Trump administration comes in, and they're faced, a little bit like they were with North Korea, with a fait accompli. The fait accompli is China's militarized these islands. They have the potential to have a chokehold over the world's most important waterways. So what do you do? Well, we're not going to bomb the islands, obviously. We're not going to war over the islands. So you have to figure out other ways of sending messages. Well, one way is to use the US Navy and the US Air Force to do things that are called freedom of navigation operations, which has a specific legal connotation for the Navy about how warships can pass through uh, waters and international waters and waters that are claimed by other nations. Uh, you can do aerial overflights. The United States, the greatest military power in the world, was extraordinarily hesitant to do any of that as the Chinese were building up these islands. And I don't want to take the analogy too far, but you can think back to earlier periods in 20th century history when a little bit of pressure early on might have changed the calculations of antagonists that you were dealing with, and we didn't do it then. And we haven't done it today. Those islands aren't going away. They have landing strips for jet aircraft. They have anti-ship missiles. They have radar. They have, uh, have anti-aircraft missiles. They're, they're fully functioning military bases. So what can we do? Well, what the Trump administration has done, and again, this, this started a, a lot when HR was, uh, was in office, was to do more and more of these freedom of navigation operations. We're up to about one every month. And we send a couple of ships through these waters right where the Chinese claim them. Then we do aerial overflight. We send bombers or we send other types of planes to make the point that the Chinese can't think that these are their waters. Because in fact, if you look up at this whole South China Sea, that's what they claim. They claim the whole sea as Chinese territory, regardless of the fact that other nations claim islands, regardless of the fact that it touches the littorals of how many different states. Doesn't matter. The Chinese claim the whole sea. So the Trump administration now is regularly sending ships through these waters. Not only down here, though, uh, in the Spratleys. Look up at Taiwan. If you remember back to 1995, the United States sent two aircraft carriers to Taiwan, the waters off the Taiwan uh, Strait, 
because the Chinese were lobbing ballistic missiles on either side of Taiwan. They were doing that because they were trying to intimidate the, Chinese, uh, intimidate the Taiwanese against voting in the first free presidential election for a candidate that was more independence-oriented. So President Clinton sent in, very rightfully, two aircraft carriers, and the Chinese backed off. Since then, however, the Chinese, from that moment, learned the lesson. They decided they never wanted again to be in the position where the US could, with impunity, sail our ships through the Taiwan Strait. That's that body of water between Taiwan and the mainland. You see where it says Fujian? That's, that's right, that water in between there's the Taiwan Strait. An enormous amount of the military buildup that I've talked to you guys a lot about over the past 20 years derives from that moment when the Chinese realized that we have nothing that can oppose the United States in these waters. So Chinese have built aircraft carriers. They've built a ton of surface ships, submarines, anti-ship ballistic missiles, stealth fighters, and jets, all to try to make sure that the US can't act with impunity in the region. It's the greatest challenge we face in exercising our military power in Asia, is that the Chinese have built a military precisely to oppose our military. But the Trump administration has been sailing ships through the Taiwan Straits as well. Just last month, we sent a Navy destroyer and a Coast Guard cutter through these straits. The message to China is, these are open international waters. And you have to think about the risk that you want to take if you ever would want to prevent that from happening under peacetime conditions. But it's interesting because uh, if I had been talking to you five years ago or even eight years ago, we wouldn't have talked that much about Taiwan. We went through a period from 2008 until 2016 where Taiwan was pretty much off the table. Taiwan had been one of the most significant Cold War Asian security and strategic issues. Of course, because of our support for Taiwan versus uh, communist China. And in 2008, a, a, a president was elected who was more disposed towards cross-strait relations, building up economic relations, trade relations, political relations, and the like. And from one angle, that was a good thing. You don't want to go to war over Taiwan. You don't want to have to go to war over Taiwan. But in another way, it lulled us into gradually and maybe even sometimes unconsciously, reducing our support for Taiwan. Well, Taiwan's back on the table because in 2016, the current president was elected. She is from the Democratic Progressive Party, which is a more independence-oriented party. And what you are seeing over the past two years is China has ratcheted up the pressure on Taiwan. It has peeled away its last remaining diplomatic partners. Taiwan's down to 16, I think diplomatic partners in the world. China peels them away with aid and trade packages, and then they switch diplomatic recognition to China. It has, peel, it has squeezed Taiwan by increasing the military buildup across the strait, by pointing more missiles at Taiwan, by talking about the types of military actions it would take if Taiwan ever tried to become independent. And Xi Jinping, the president of China himself, at, the, uh, uh, at his New Year's talk, his big New Year's talk every year, said it is inevitable that China and Taiwan will be reunified and China will never forswear the use of force to prevent Taiwan from becoming independent. So in response, and, and actually over those past, the past year and a half, uh, I guess two years that the Trump administration's been in office, they've done a number of things that administrations have not been willing to do that the Chinese don't like. One, they have upped the diplomatic contacts between the United States and Taiwan. We don't actually have an embassy, we have a non-embassy there that handles American affairs. It's very weird. We don't have an ambassador, we have a director. But it's our embassy and that's our ambassador. 
And he's just met very publicly with the president of Taiwan several times. The administration has approved more weapons sales to Taiwan. It is talking about selling them advanced F-16 fighters. And we're talking about ways in which we are actually going to begin a new, uh, I was going to call it diplomatic, it's not really a diplomatic dialogue, it's a regional dialogue on democratic governance, which will apparently be chaired by the US and Taiwan, which has never happened before, to essentially raise Taiwan's regional profile as a nation that is leading the discussion about democracy in Asia, which is very important. And, they, and, and um, that, that hasn't started yet, but, but it will start. And so Taiwan is back on the table. The problem with Taiwan being back on the table is that it is still probably the single most credible red line for the Chinese. That's the third rail for Chinese foreign policy is Taiwan becoming independent or not. And so supporting Taiwan is a necessity. It is vital. It is important. But it also carries an enormous amount of risk because of what it means to the Chinese. So having talked a little bit about Taiwan and the South China Sea, that's the second exam question that the Trump administration has been facing. There's still Chinese bases there, but we've shown we're going to go there more often. Taiwan hasn't resolved its status with China, but we've actually pretty dramatically upped the contacts we have with it, but that's incurred some risk. So with that, let me turn then to the third exam question, the big one, China itself. Can't talk about all of it. I actually should check how much time I've got. I, got, I have to wrap up because I want to get to your questions. So I can't talk about all of it. Uh, let me talk about the things that you're probably interested in. Uh, most importantly would be the trade talks, where we stand with the trade talks. Are we going to get a deal? Um, we're going to know fairly soon, I think. I think the answer is going to be yes. Both sides need a deal. Trump needs a deal because you don't want to go into 2020 with this still going on. The Chinese need a deal because their economy continues to slow down pretty dramatically, though we saw a big, a big surge in exports last month, but it's been preceded by dramatic decreases in its exports, especially to the United States. By a continued macroeconomic slowdown, GDP predicted, predicted if you want to believe those figures, to grow at something about 6.5% maybe, but no one I know, and certainly no you know, Chinese-focused economist I know believes in those figures. So the pressure on Xi Jinping, I, I would argue, is actually much greater than the pressure on Donald Trump, except for the wild card of having this election. Um, so are they going to come to a deal? They're probably going to come to a deal. U.S. has made it a little bit easier in the past couple days. One of the big things that we wanted to get out of the Chinese was a commitment for them to reduce the support, the subsidies they pay to state-owned enterprises, which we consider to be an unfair advantage for those state-owned enterprises in, uh, in dealing with us. Keeps costs down and the like, obviously, so they can continue to undercut. Um, we've backed off of that, apparently. We backed off of it in part, I think it's a recognition that in China, the promises that Xi Jinping made starting in 2013 to reduce the size of the state-owned enterprise sector have not come to fruition. In fact, if you think of China as this open economy, this sort of wild west economy where anything goes, the reality is actually the opposite. It is becoming more tightly controlled, more controlled by state-owned enterprises, more concentration of wealth and power and productive capacity and the like by state-owned enterprises. And so we've backed off and we've said, well, we're, we don't think we're going to get that. So instead, what we're trying to do is hold the Chinese to the promise to open up their markets to us, to protect intellectual property rights, to stop 
the cyber hacking. That, I think, is going to be the basis of the deal that you see. The Chinese will promise to buy trillions of dollars of US goods. They're going to promise that the markets will be open for us, for our firms to get in and to compete, that they will respect our intellectual property rights. That sounds like a great deal. It's one we should absolutely grab, except for the fact that all of that's been promised before, multiple times. On cyber, the president, Xi Jinping, promised President Obama in Sunnylands, at the Sunnyland Summit in 2014, that China would no longer conduct cyber espionage against American businesses. Wouldn't do it anymore. Today, they've increased what they're doing against American businesses, the penetration. For years, decades, they've promised more access to the markets, and we haven't seen it. And the easiest one of all, over and over and over, China has talked about respecting and protecting American intellectual property rights. That, of course, China is sensitive to this because China, too, is at risk of having its secrets stolen. Of course, it would be odd because those are the secrets they stole from us, so we'd be stealing them back. I mean, maybe we should do that. I don't know. But last year, they came out with this, this huge report about how Chinese, the theft of Chinese intellectual property was harming the Chinese, the Chinese economy. But they've made these promises over and over and over again. There is no way to have them enforced. Now, the latest twist that the Trump administration has come up with, it was just reported today, is that both sides will have enforcement uh, or monitoring, enforcement's not the right word, obviously, monitoring offices in each country to monitor the progress of the promises that have, that have been made, which is a great thing. We should have monitoring. The more information we get about China, the better. It has absolutely no impact on how the Chinese will, will actually act. So the biggest thing that Trump has done with China, the biggest thing that any US president has done with China in 40 years, and this year, 2019, is the 40th anniversary of the normalization of diplomatic relations between the US and China. The biggest thing, which is to say no more on the current trading paradigm. It is unfair. You've taken advantage of us. You've broken your promises. You haven't lived up to your promises. We're going to change that, and we're going to do it by levying $250 billion worth of tariffs on your goods, varying rates from 10 to 25%. The biggest thing any president has done looks like it's going to result in this agreement. Now, the question is, if Trump was able to get the Chinese to this table, really worry them that he meant business, and get them to this agreement, does that mean that they're actually going to live up to it. I hear murmuring in the audience. Are they going to live up to it? Well, it, all, it depends on the types of escape clauses you have. The real question is, is Trump credible with the Chinese? If they don't live up to it, do they fear that he will do something else, that he will go back to tariffs? What will those mechanisms be? That's what we don't know yet. But is he credible? He's credible enough to have gotten them to the table. He's credible enough to have done something that no other president was willing to do. But again, the way that the North Koreans may have figured out the new paradigm of dealing with the US president, just keep stringing them along, may be the way that the Chinese have also understood, you're not going back to the way it was before with the US. They're not going to accept this. But Trump has given us the potential of an opening to actually seem like we're solving the problem while making sure that very little changes underneath. And the real answer is, is only time will tell. 
but I will say there's no going back. That's my midterm assessment. I'm gonna have you grade them in two seconds. There's no going back on, on North Korea in the sense that we have opened up this new level of relations. We're not gonna say, well, we're never gonna to talk to the North Korean leader again. We've done it twice. We can say we won't talk to him for six months because we don't like what he did, but we've opened up that new, that new, um, that new uh, avenue. South China Sea. I don't think it's going back. I don't think any US president could get away with saying, I'm never gonna challenge the Chinese in these territories that they've claimed. But the Chinese haven't said, oh, we're, we're scared, we're going home now. They just know that the US is gonna do one set of things it wasn't going to do before, but they haven't left the South China Sea. And on China, no way we're going back to a president who says the way trade was with China is fine. Cyber espionage, intellectual property theft, uh, support for the state enterprises, that's fine, we don't care anymore. But will China actually change? So the Trump administration has had probably the most radical Asia policy of any administration I can think of since Richard Nixon. The question is, is it a successful Asian policy? So now I want you guys to grade them and then we'll go to questions. So you can cover your eyes if you don't want anyone to see you what you're doing. <laughs> How many of you would give Trump, the Trump administration, an A on its Indo-Pacific policy? How many of you, raise your hand if you'd give them an A. Oh, wow. Wow, I actually need counters. Uh, give Trump an A. All of it, no, the whole thing. It's all, you have three exam questions, we've graded it all. I know we could divide it up, but I just wanna give it the whole thing. How many of you would give an A? Hold your hands up again. Ooh, Chris, quick, count, quickly. All right, how many of you would give a B? Actually looks almost equal. How many of you would give a C? Very few. And I know grade inflation, there's no Ds anymore. How many of you would give a D? No Ds? F, any Fs? You guys were pretty evenly split between A and B. And that's pretty interesting. I think you're right, sir. Jay, we should have actually said, okay, grade each one. But in the broad sense, because you have to look at it in the whole way, I think you're right. I think he's about a B plus. That's, that's pretty interesting. The question is, though, if it's a midterm, this isn't the final. So we'll come back in two years, we'll do the final, all right? Okay. Um, For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.